Welcome to the Parish Art Museum podcast, where we aspire to provide opportunities for learning, sharing, and celebrating the many innovative and pioneering artists who call the East End home. Come back each week to find new and impactful experiences in the arts. Welcome, welcome to the Parish Art Museum. My name is Corinne Ernie. I'm the Senior Curator of Arts Reach and Special Projects here at the museum. Tonight is a bittersweet moment, bitter because it's the last program of our outdoor seasons, but I'm so happy that we were able to bring high quality programs and a lot of joy to all of you throughout the summer. And I, at this moment, I wanna thank our sponsors, presenting sponsor, Bank of America, as well as Sandy and Stephen Perlbinder. But the sweet moment is uh, you're in for a real treat tonight. We are going to show you the new Bauhaus, a film by Alyssa Namias. It's the story about Laszlo Moholinaj when he came to Chicago in 1937 from Hungary to create a new institute called the New Bauhaus to promote modern design. The 1930s were turbulent times, and I feel that we're in similarly turbulent times right now. And so I think it's really important that we keep the dialogue open, that we create platforms for creative minds to come together. And on that note, I'm really happy to have some of the producers here tonight who were involved in the film. Um, Marquis Stilwell, who is the executive producer. Peter Ringbaum, who is a producer as well as a cinematographer. Ashley Lukasik, um, who is a co-producer. And the conversation will be moderated by Andras Santo. And rumors has it that Andras is actually related to Moholy Nash, and I hope he'll tell you all about it. But Andras is a cultural strategist who wrote an article in April about how museums could very soon open up safely. And that was kind of like a lifesaver mentally and emotionally for all of us working in the museum world. And I think he'll tell you a little bit more about that. But without further ado, I want to invite uh, the panelists to get started. And um, before we do that, I just want to mention that after the panel, we're all going to move out to the lawn to watch the screening. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Corinne. And I should say Corinne has bona fide Hungarian credentials because we first met. She was helping to run the Year of Hungarian Culture in New York, which is one part of her history, but she's also been doing an amazing job here at, um, at the parish. And, and I think we should acknowledge that we are sitting in a space that is itself the proof of so much of what's in the film, which is good design and how it could make the world better. I think for many of us, this is our first evening of being together for an event like this, certainly for me. And it's made possible by visionary design. So thank you, Herzog and Demeron, and everybody who chose them. So um, we're here to, um, to celebrate an extraordinary creative visionary and the film about Laszlo Molinoj. And indeed, chances are, if you're here, you probably, who, you probably know who this man is with this strange name. Uh, but just in case, I'm going to give you a little preamble. And I get, we're going to start with the name, because I don't think anybody pronounces the name correctly. I happen to be Hungarian, so I'm going to tell you how it should be pronounced. So you can be the smartest person in the room at the next cocktail party. So it's Laszlo Moholinaj. Okay, so there's no the Z in Hungarian. You don't pronounce the Z. 
It's almost like it's not there. It's one letter. So Laszlo Moholinoid. So, and if you really want to be super Hungarian, you know, smart, then you know that actually Hungarians say their names back for you backwards. So it's Moholinoid Laszlo. So if you really want to nail it, it's Moholinoid Laszlo. Now I'm going to tell you a very, very quick story. And it's a story that I heard many, many times from my grandmother. My grandmother, Amitzi, was born in a town called Zento, which today would be in the northern part of Serbia, close to the Hungarian border. And nearby, there was a town called Mohol, small town. Now, Moholi just means somebody from Mohol. It should really be the letter I, but if you were fancy, you turned your I into a Y, and that's how you get Moholi. So anyway, they were related. My grandmother Mitzi was Moholi Noid's cousin. And my grandmother lived in this very, very large house, sort of an estate, and many Sundays, Moholi Noid's mother would come after lunch, after Sunday lunch, and she would receive um, an envelope with cash, which helped support the family. A few years later, in 1919, when H Greater Hungary was no more, and Serbia was now Serbia, Molinoid and my grandmother Mitzi both found themselves in Budapest. Molinoid was sort of a member of the radical avant-garde, and my grandmother was studying piano and living with her very fancy aunt. And then came the Commune of 1919. Now, if you're not versed in the minutiae of Hungarian history, then anyway, there was a 100-day sort of communist revolution in Hungary. And this was not a great time to be two women living alone in an apartment, particularly in a huge apartment full of art. So it was time to return the favor, and Molly Noid moved in with my grandmother and set up his studio for a couple of months in, in this very grand apartment. And unfortunately, years later, when we got to this part of the story, I would always ask, so did you keep any of the work? And she would always say, no, he was a real arrogant guy, and I really didn't like him. So that was that. And of course, because of his political leanings in part, Molly then left Hungary, and the rest, as they say, is history. Nonetheless, I am today very happy to serve on the board of the Moholinoid Foundation with Hatula Moholinoid, the daughter of Laszlo Moholinoid, and his two grandsons, Andreas and Dan. Dan actually runs the Cologne Art Fair, so he didn't fall far from the tree. And uh, I know they send their greetings, and they're delighted to hear that this event was going on. A few things about Moholinoid. So he lived from 1895 to 1946. Uh, he came to the U.S. in 1937, and he was, of course, a key member of the Bauhaus. I like to think of Molinoid as one of the three sort of legs of classic modernist art. If you think of Picasso as the iconoclast who reinvented visual forms, and if you think of Duchamp as the guy who gave us conceptualism and the idea that art can be about ideas, then Molly Noid was really about radical interdisciplinarity and the idea that art can engage all forms of creative practice 
and that it, it could and indeed should have a direct impact on everyday life, which is, of course, the founding principle of the Bauhaus, which is exactly why I think he is today, maybe more than the other two even, a kind of cult figure among art students and young people in the art world, because in many ways this radical interdisciplinarity is the thing now. So along the way, he established the American Bauhaus, and that's what this film is about. So that's what we're going to talk about today. Uh, as already mentioned, uh, you know, we have a very interesting group of people here who all have come to filmmaking through different practices. You're all wear art hats and designer hats, and we're not going to go into your extensive biographies, but in a way, I think it's a, it's a reflection of Molly Noid, of the kind of people who are attracted to, attracted to him. So what I'd like to do very briefly, because we, need, we all need to get out of the way eventually and let you watch the film, is just give you a little context around this film. Usually these talks happen after, so we can't sort of give away the ending, but I want us to give you enough to, to, to sort of set the stage. And Ashley, I'd like to start with you and just say a few words about why this film and why now. Sure. Yeah. So thank you, first of all, for the introduction. Um, and I also just want to thank the parish and Corinne for having us. It's really exciting to be at a real live event with actual people and not doing this <laughs> on Zoom, which so many of our um, events for the film ended up going virtual virtual yeah. because of, you know, everything that's going on. So it's really nice to be here. And I had I have not seen, you know, Petter or Marquise for, what, nine months? So really nice for us to have a chance to be together too. So in thinking about the origin story for the film, I mean, we have to go back to like 2015 when we started to kind of knock around this concept for what we would do, knowing that the 100th anniversary of the Bauhaus was approaching. Um, I live in Chicago. I worked at the Institute of Design, which this film is ultimately about, as, in addition to being about Mahoy Naj for eight years. And we were, you know, kind of trying to think about how we could elevate Chicago's design story with the 100th anniversary and really talk about the new Bauhaus and Maholi and everything that uh, transpired there that really, frankly, the city, neither the city nor the institute had done a fantastic job as kind of communicating about. Sort of a well-kept secret almost. Yeah, it really, it really was. Um, in addition to that, Maholi was getting kind of this like sort of renewed interest in his work with mm -hmm. the retrospective that had traveled from the Guggenheim to the Art Institute to LACMA. to LACMA. Yeah, and so, I mean, maybe some of you saw that, but it was a pretty fantastic retrospective. And did you know it would stop, be a movie, or were there sort of other... Well, yeah, I mean, initially it could have gone in almost any direction. Mm -hmm. I mean, it could have been a symposium, it could have been a book, it could have been, you know, all of these different things, and it wasn't necessarily, you know, when we were first thinking about this, it wasn't necessarily about Maholi, mm -hmm. but it was an important moment for design. I was personally interested, in addition to that, this kind of parallel story of the original Bauhaus emerging out of this, like, you know, industrial revolution mm -hmm. and where we find ourselves now in another industrial revolution that's really characterized by this rapid acceleration of the digital economy, mm -hmm. which, 
you know, I personally and, and others who subscribe to design would say design has to have a point of view on mm. and should help us, uh, it should be part of how we navigate this. So anyway, I, I basically, you know, met Marquise and introduced this concept to him, which we quickly brought back to Petter. So wait, you know, so was it your idea or their idea or you both had the same idea? Well, like we were gonna together. do something with the 100th anniversary of the Bauhaus and we had, you know, we were playing with an idea of some type of a film, mm -hmm. but it certainly wasn't at the, you know, scale of a feature documentary. And it was Petra and Marquise who, who felt that there was a story there that, that warranted that mm -hmm. um, and something that they wanted to, you know, produce through Open Docs yeah. as an independent film. Mm -hmm. So, of course, there was input and some support from the Institute, but ultimately Open Docs produced this with total creative license okay. and well, brought Alyssa Namias in. So let's go to Petra. I, I, Petra, just say a few words, first of all, about the kind of films you make and why this was the right thing for you. Well, so Marquise and I run Open Docs, which is the pr production company behind it, as, as Ashley mentioned. I think another colleague of mine or ours described what we're doing as creative underdog stories. <laughs> We need seem to be, if there's a lineage between the films that we are involved in, it seems to be that. We're really attracted by those kind of stories of people who, who use art, sometimes music, um, sometimes design, to impact, change, escape from the, their surroundings that they're in. Mm. And I think this is definitely one of those stories. I mean, Maholi is very much how did you first learn about him? What's that? How did you first learn about him? Well, I, I mean, I, I went to art school. So <laughs> <laughs> at some point, I actually had a, had a legendary art, his, his, art history teacher named Dory Ashton at okay. Cooper Union, and she loved Maholi. Right. And she actually did the same kind of thing that you did, where she had like, well, you have to, you have to understand. It's like, yeah, Picasso, but Maholi, he is, <laughs> he is the guy. And of course, as you know, young art students were like, okay. So, certainly I was very familiar with Maholi and loved his work. The show at the Guggenheim, I think for us also reawakened the, the, the Chicago part of his story, which I think we knew about, but I never, we never really explored very, very far in art history, if you will. But if we felt like this is really interesting, that he, he spent this much time in Chicago and what kind of impact it had, not only on that, that city, but on design and art mm. in the country. So, you know, in conversation with Institute of Design and with Ashley and her team, you know, we, we felt like this is a perfect scenario to try to do something of scope and ambition and really go for it and make the story about Maholi and focus on these, you know, nine years in Chicago. And what, yeah, I mean, I have happened. to say, when I first heard about it from Hotula, I was a little bit full of trepidation, you know, because I was worried about the sort of reverential sort of, you know, Channel 13 PBS style pans of yeah. photographs, but also there's just so much of Moholy. There's the designer, there's the scientist, there's the writer, there's the propagandist, there's the graphic designer, there's the school guy. Like, how did you like yeah. zero in on a piece you could <laughs> take on? Well, some this, this, this is hard to talk about. Just people need, you know, Usually you have discussions after the film. Yeah, but you'll see. The answer, you'll is, see. the answer is there. You're just going to see it now. But um, we, 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 it's, it's thematically structured. It's basically 
four segments in the film. We don't title those segments, but it's structured according to theme that are related to his different practices. Mm -hmm. But if, if, if I think that there's anything, though, that is the, the big takeaway is really around education. Mm -hmm. I mean, that, that's, where, that's where we land, as you will see in the film. Like, the, the, probably his biggest impact in the way we felt, you know, making this film is probably around education. Right. So, Marquis, tell us, just take us inside how you brought him to life. I mean, as you will soon discover, usually this would be after the film, but if you were an hour and a half from now, you would know that this is not a typical documentary and some very interesting creative things go on. Yeah. Tell a little bit yeah, about it. I mean, it. I, I guess just to build off what Petter was saying, that as designers and creatives, you know, the whole process is, is nonlinear, right? And so how do you take a non-linear process and then create some process to allow everyone to understand the story. And I believe that, you know, that was the challenge and the opportunity for us is to really help to tell Waholi's story without it just being a bunch of talking heads and some historical doc. And what you'll feel when you're watching the film is a bit of his process and the process of design. And I would even argue that, you know, we, we want it to even be messier than really what it turned out to be. But that's difficult. I mean, any artist that you're seeing as you walk around here, there is a, a messy process in the back of touching, going, tearing something up, then coming back to it. And the filmmaking process is the same way. The way that the film, what you're going to see, is not the way that we actually shot the film, right? But we had to get to some binary output to allow you to understand what we were doing, but understand that the creative process itself is non-binary. Mm -hmm. And so that was the fun part of us going back and forth. And you'll feel a little bit of that. We didn't add as high fidelity as we wanted to, but you'll feel a little bit of how we actually dial some of that in. So one of the really interesting things you did is you chose a kind of avatar for Moholy in Hans Ulrich Obrist. So, Tell me about how that decision came about and how that all went. So, um, well, Hans Ulrich Oberst, we, <laughs> we were looking for some way to, to, to have an, the audience connect with a person, Maholi, who's been dead for a long time. And where there is not, there's a lot of photos of him, but there's very little film clip, as you know. How does an audience member feel his presence? And we, we tried different things. We worked with actors and tried, and it felt really contrived and weird. And then we, we realized that, you know, someone in the art space who had a big personality and, and could embody a little bit of, of Maholi's uh, vibe, Hans Ulrich was that, that guy. And luckily, one of our fellow producers, Aaron Wright at, at LACMA, she knows him, and she could mm -hmm. be able to connect us with him and convince. It doesn't take that much convincing us. Actually, he's, you know, he well, likes he likes to do stuff. He likes yeah. to, you know, he, he's not afraid of experimenting. So he was all into it. So we went to London and shot him. And you'll see when you when, we, when you watch the film, we did we did something where you actually see him performing dialogue or quotes from a holy. Mm -hmm. And this is something that Marquise and I did and we, as a test for another short film. So we had already experimented with the idea of seeing the narrator on screen. Mm -hmm. So what? Other, it seems like getting 
Hans Ulrich wasn't so hard because he loves Moholy, so he's obsessed with Moholy. But what was the hardest about this movie, other than probably raising the money for it? Yeah, I mean, I, I guess it was really trying to get everything into 89 minutes and so. There, there's so much there to his life. And again, making it so it's not a boring talking head documentary where you just sit there and everyone says something about him. And so we wanted to bring him to you know, life. And the exciting part for us, because we are creatives, we're designers, we're filmmakers, the same way that he was. And so when I first heard the story, it really resonated and I really connected with it. So I think for us, it was, you know, Hachala really opened up her archives and it was amazing as just a design nerd, just like to go in and see everything that was happening in all the books. Um, I also spent some time in Weimar in Germany and really got to touch where it all began. So it was like us negotiating between all of us mm -hmm. what should be there mm -hmm. and uh, what should not. A couple of bigger questions and then we'll let the audience go. I mean, I, for me, when I first saw this film in Chicago, I came away thinking we live in Moholy Nard's world more than I realized. Tell me what that means for you. What would that statement mean for you? I mean, his fingerprints are sort of in many places, right? Yeah, I mean, I, th I think that that depends on your background and where you're, you're at. Like for me, as someone who spent most of my life in the art world and in an art school that's very much based on the Bauhaus, you know, pedagogy and way of teaching, I can see directly in like the way I was taught and the way I work. It's like, yeah, I, the, the, the exercises that he put forth at the new Bauhaus in Chicago that he, you know, was, took some of them from the German Bauhaus. I did the same exercises 70 years after he did at the new mm -hmm. Bauhaus or 50 years, whatever, when I went, went to school. I mean, that's just mm -hmm. one thing. I mean. Well, I, so it's an interesting question because you almost, where design is actually going and how design has evolved. I mean, so with Maholi, it's not only design, right? I mean, he had so many different disciplines. It's like, it would be unfair to refer to him as only as a designer. He's more an artist probably even than a designer. But for me, you know, design and for Marquise, that's, this is our discipline, right? And design is increasingly going in a direction where it's responding to culture. It's responding to changing human behavior. And it's being asked to solve for bigger, more systemic problems and not be just kind of, you know, continuing to stay located in the production and, and sale of consumer goods. And I think that feels very Maholi, you know, and I think his ability and his comfort level with moving between the different disciplines so freely and kind of kind of with like a fuck you attitude about it, like this is what I'm going to do mm -hmm. is, I mean, you alluded to this earlier, but it's it, that feels very current mm -hmm. um, and much more of the times. No, I, I would say for me, it's just this idea of being able to to break the rules and, and not have to be stuck in a certain way. I believe that most creatives and designers and people that are interested in this were always like that. And I feel like a lot of what has happened in education, we've asked people to specialize. And, and my hope is that we're, we're moving away from forcing young people to specialize in one discipline as a way of means for how they express themselves. Um, and expressing themselves is like a way of living and how you want to have a job. And for, for us, and particularly our production company, it has definitely continued to open the way that we think about filmmaking 
and then me on the design side as well of how we approach design as a, as a practice and really focusing on the, the process and not falling in love with the, the outcome of it. Mm -hmm. So last question really, I mean, it's impossible not to reflect on this moment and this film I think resonates very powerfully with this moment as you will see for yourself. But here's a protagonist who sort of pirouetted his way through Europe, always just dodging the authoritarian and worse um, wave that was just always just behind him. Here's a guy who very successfully engaged with the commercial energies of his time. Here's a guy who came up with all those modern media and technologies that define our moment but who also clearly stood for a kind of total freedom. So what do you think he would make of this moment, if you could hypothesize? Well, I was thinking a lot about him in March and in April as you know, we had to re rethink our whole release strategy for this project. And you know, talking to endless festivals who were canceling or postponing or what have you. And, and as I think it was easy to sort of feeling anxious and, and worried. And, but then I thought about this person who, you know, what we spent, I mean, how many years in his life, who, you know, lived through two world wars, fought in the first world war, was injured, Nazi, Nazi persecution, <laughs> had to constantly, constantly struggle to make it economically, you know, for, his, for him and his family to support them. And then through all of that was incredibly optimistic and always making things, always being creative, never stopping. Mm. I mean, how could I sit there and complain about whatever we were going through And I, when I looked at something like that? That was like, to me, all the big takeaway for Marquis. No, I mean, I, I see his fingerprints on so many things. And I, the reason why I was excited about the project as well is the way that it played in with Chicago. And if you think about what Chicago was versus what New York City was at the time, it was a place of experimenting. I saw the parallels between what Mahalo was doing and jazz and what Miles Davis and what those guys were doing. And particularly, there's an amazing album called Live at the Plug Nickel, where Miles and the team, they're going to Chicago and they play the tune So What. If you guys are familiar with the jazz, the tune So What. They played at the temple that he actually wrote it because he knew he was going to Chicago and he could play, he could experiment. And so it's this idea that in Chicago you could experiment, you could push. And for me, just understanding this time that we're in right now and what it means to experiment, what it means to play, and what does it also mean to, to think about the future? You know, punk music, funk music, jazz, it was always thinking about what is the future. And he was ahead of his time in many ways, particularly with his contemporaries. Mm -hmm. And I think that us getting through this moment, um, many of us, we have to think about what is the future of and what happens after this moment. And that's where I believe the next wave of artists, creatives, and people are making things happen live. Mm -hmm. Ashley, what makes him current for you? Well, I don't know if I'm gonna answer that question exactly, but a comment I wanna make is that um, I think it's worth asking, you know, this question of kind of like, what would Maholi do with this moment? And I, I think what he would ask us to do and would want to see happen 
is for us to start to really get back into engaging again with one another, with the moment that's upon us, use it as fuel, think about it as a way to channel new possibilities, you know, with optimism, but not in this kind of checked out way that we have been. Mm. I mean, everything going on right now has kind of forced, it's been a big wake up call and it's our like opportunity, you know? And so looking at the things that are difficult and, and seeing them as opportunities, I think is huge. Well, I hope we piqued your interest enough to stay for the movie and be, you know, ready for this multidimensional character. I think all you need to do is pick up your chairs and there's the screen and enjoy the show and thank our speakers. Thank you. Thank you.